0: Right, we're going to be getting into our study this morning, and it is on John chapter 15, where we were before, John chapter 15, we're not going to uh, read the whole passage again, the, the focus is going to be from verses 7 to 11, verses 7 to 11, John chapter 15, read with me. And he says there, If ye abide in me, and my words abide in you, ye shall ask what ye will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that ye bear much fruit, so shall ye be my disciples. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. So the focus of the message this morning is joy. It's about joy. And I think that if there's a time in our history that we need to have that encouragement of joy, it's probably now. You know, We're seeing the day approaching, and we're looking at this world, and we're looking at the direction and, and how it's travelling. And it's very, very difficult to stay encouraged. As you see the world falling apart behind you and in front of you and on both sides of you, um, it's really a grief to our hearts to see what's going on. And the more you're in touch with what's going on, the greater the grief. But also, the greater the opportunity. The greater the opportunity for the gospel to be shared. The greater the opportunity for hope to be shared, you know. And that's what we're looking forward to. So the end goal of the passage that we have before us is for the purpose that our joy may be full. Our joy may be full. The Bible speaks about joy. Within about 184 verses have joy and rejoice and the different semblances of the word joy in there. It has happiness in there too on 25 different verses. There is a difference that the scriptures bring out with respect to happiness and joy. Um, you now, the Bible seems to present happiness as a declared state of being. It's it's um, it's a it's a temporal thing. It's something that happens on a moment uh, by moment basis, but it's temporary. You know, um, and it's de- and it's declared in scripture. But joy, joy is very different. Right through the Bible, it's different. You find it um, something that we experience on earth. But you also discover that even the angels rejoice in heaven. We see that joy seems to be having its source somewhere in particular. And in this passage, it's in Christ. Christ is the one in whom all our joy is sourced. And he is the one in whom we abide. So joy is something that we do experience, and it's a wonderful blessing to experience it. But, um, but it's something that can come even through our suffering. It's something that can, uh, can abide with us, no matter what our present state is. What we're going to be doing a little bit this morning is talking about how the world seeks after its happiness and how the Lord demonstrates it just here in this passage. Okay, But it's a choice. And that's the entire point that I want you to understand. It is a choice. We can forget about joy. Especially when we're going through our hard times. We can really easily forget about joy. So we've got to remember and choose that we are to abide in Christ. and our joy comes from Him. So the first point in the, is in the first verse and it's a choice of abode. A choice of abode. He says here, if ye abide in me and my words abide in. In you, ye shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. That part is that which works to our benefit, towards joy. It's a choice to make because we live in the world that the Bible says is actively trying to conform us into its own image. You know, we are to abide in Christ. We have a choice here to abide in Christ. Or do we abide in the world? If we abide in the world then there is a work to conform us into the image of the world. But if we abide in Christ, then his words abide within us, that ultimately our joy might be full. We know that. We've got it in Romans chapter 12. In Romans chapter 12, he says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. That word conformed is working actively, but we're receiving it passively. In other words, we're not doing anything necessarily to be conformed. It's having its work done on us. So the point is, the more time you spend in the world and enjoying the indulgences of the world and thinking that the world has something to give you, the more the world is conforming you into its own image. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. So... The company we keep also has its influence within our lives, so we need to be care about. We need to be careful about that. Um, everything about this world—it's interesting. All the conforming work that's being done is also word-centered. It might sound a little bit confusing, but you see how Christ—we abide in Him, and His words abide in us. Well, the world itself can't do any active conforming work apart from words. Words are incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful. Our media uses words to transform your mind, to change how you think and what you think. Matter of fact, it actually is going to be working towards even policing the words that come out of your mind, that come out of your mouth. There will be words and phrases that will come to pass that will be illegal. You won't be allowed to utter them. So the work at trying to control words is also a work that tries to control thought. You see, you can't think without words. You can't think without words. That's why, that's why knowing language is so vitally important. That's why understanding English is so important. Understanding grammar and the principles of grammar so vitally important. And you're talking to a guy who, who basically, Man, I didn't do Year 12 because I knew I was going to fail English. You know, I knew I was going to fail English, so I didn't bother with it. You know? so, and if you failed English in year 12, you failed year 12 and I didn't want to do it twice, <laughs> once is bad enough so you know, I didn't want anything to do with it but I didn't realise that words alter and enhance thought until I went to Italy for a holiday, I was there when I was 17 years of age and, and I started picking up the language because my parents spoke to me a bit in Italian at home but I never really spoke Italian at home uh, but when I went there, I didn't have much of a choice. I had to, I had to speak the language, you know. Um, and before I knew it, I found myself sort of alone there on a balcony. And, then I, and there I am, thinking in Italian. And I'm like, oh, crikey, I, I'm thinking in Italian. What's that? I didn't know you actually thought in a language, you know, because you never think about thinking until you start thinking that you're thinking about thinking and you're using words to think that you're thinking. <sighs> So words are vitally important. They're really important. And the world uses words. So we can either have the words of the world abiding in us or the words of Christ abiding in us. Make sense? And it all comes down to where your abode is. See, if you abide in Christ, he tells us that his words will abide in us. Now, that doesn't happen by osmosis. Okay, you have to read the word of God. It doesn't just happen naturally. You've got to read the Word of God. But let me encourage you, when your abode is in Christ, when your abode is in Him, you desire to read His Word. You see, because His Word tells us about Him. It gives us an understanding of His character, His nature, what He's like, how He judges, how He rules, how He governs, how He's worked with the disobedient and gainsaying people which we also can be. You know, the picture of Israel in the Old Testament is just a picture of the church today. It's a picture of you, individually. You know, when you look at judges and every man does that which is right in his own eyes, that's us from time to time. You know, we do that which is right in our own eyes from time to time. So words also answer our petitions. That's an interesting thought. If he abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. The words themselves answer our petitions. I don't know if you've, ever, if you've ever noticed that when you go to pray and you've spent time reading the word of God and you've indulged the word of God and you've let that word work its way within your own life and you pray and, and you're asking the Lord for some leading or some guiding. How often does it happen that his very word repeats itself back in you it gives you the answer that you're looking for you know and it doesn't take much to do it you know um what's an example I, we've had oh I, I remembered when when uh sometimes i pray and you know how you love praying and and you and you're with the lord and you have that beautiful comforting experience of the lord you, you you've got a sense of his presence that's there and it's a wonderful joy when it when it's there but when it's not there you're sort of like uh, All right, you know, I feel like you're far from me at the moment. You know, it's like you're not there. But then his word gives me the answer. See, his word says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So all of a sudden, I've got a choice now, and we'll talk about this in a moment. I've got a choice of authority. I've got a choice of authority. Do I believe his words or do I trust my feelings? Just because he doesn't feel like he's close to me at that particular time, does it mean he's not close to me? No. The word of God tells me that he'll never leave me nor forsake me. So he's there. He's present. And all of a sudden, I rest. All right. I don't, it doesn't matter whether I sense a comforting spirit or a comforting presence of you with me. You're with me, and I can go on praying. And I go on praying. And I speak to the Lord, and it's a wonderful joy. Um, and that's that work that's being done. But remember, the, po- the point of it is that your joy, it's for that your joy may be full. Now, The Lord's goal is that our joy may be full. That's really interesting. Do you know what the world thinks the end goal of man is? Happiness. Happiness. It believes the entire purpose of man is happiness, that we are to be happy. And I'll give you some quotes at the moment. You can go back 2,000 odd years ago to Aristotle and he said this. He says, Every pursuit... Aims at some good. He says every uh, pursuit aims at some good. There is general agreement. There is general agre- agreement that it is happiness. But then he goes on. Listen to what he says. He goes on to speak about the end that has no purpose other than its end. Okay, and I'll explain that in a moment. He says clearly not all ends are final ends, but the chief good is evidently final. He says, therefore, if there is one final end, this will be what we are seeking. We call final without qualification that which is desirable in itself and never for the sake of something else. Now, such a thing, happiness, above all else, is held to be. For this we choose always for itself and never for the sake of something else. Does that make sense? So what he's saying, I know Aristotle, he gets pretty wordy, right? So what he's essentially saying is that Aristotle is telling us that every goal that we make has a purpose toward an end. Yeah? Every goal that we make has a purpose toward an end. But if happiness is that end, then there's no other goal after that to seek. Okay? So what Aristotle is saying is that the end of man, his ultimate goal that he is seeking after, is happiness. Now, he's not the only one. Mortimer Adler, who's a, who's a great author and an incredibly intelligent man, he's the editor-in-chief of, um, of what's known as the uh, great books of the Western world. And he says this. He says, when men say that what they want is happiness, they imply that, having it, they would ask for nothing more. Okay? Makes sense? And Blaise Pascal, who's a mathematician, a scientist, and a philosopher in the 17th century, he said... All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man. Okay? Sigmund Freud. You've heard of Sigmund Freud? Okay, so he's that very learned philosopher. He's known as the the, the father of psychiatry. Okay? And uh, he's considering a different problem. And he says what the behaviour of men themselves reveals as the purpose and object of their lives, what they demand of life and wish to attain in it, the answer to this can hardly be in doubt. They seek happiness. They want to become happy and to remain so. It makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you want to be happy. You want to be content. You want to have your life filled with happiness. The Declaration of Independence, given by Thomas Jefferson, 4th of July, 1776. Guess what it says? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. That's right. Now, he goes on in, in that declaration and he says, if any government would stand in the way of your happiness, you have the right to move them away and install a new government. That's how vitally important the world sees happiness. So what we have is we have the Lord's desired end for us is that we may be full of joy, okay? We have, that's the Lord. We have the world's desired end for us to be happy. There's not a great deal of difference between those two, is there? It seems like the two are one. But let me tell you in all sincerity that the means, the means to attain those ends are very, very different. Very, very different. The world seeks after happiness. Its means are one. The Lord seeks our joy and happiness. The means are other. Very, very different. And that's what we're going to be talking about and having a look at. So, so, the first point that you need to settle within your minds is where you will abide. Will it be in the world? And what the world promises will provide you with happiness, with happiness? joy? Or will it be in Christ? Where will be your abode? That's the first choice you need to make. Nobody can force you to make it. You need to make that alone. We'll go on to our next point. The next point is the choice of purpose in verse 8. He says, Herein is my Father glorified that ye bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Here the Lord provides for us a purpose statement. This is a purpose statement, all right? We've got a purpose statement, and the purpose for us is that we bear much fruit. But the question is, to what end? To what end do we bear much fruit? Well, we bear that fruit that the Father is glorified. So the fruit that we bear is not fruit for ourselves. It's fruit for the Father, that he be glorified. In doing this... The text here says that we are clearly the disciples of Christ. For this is also the work of Christ. Why did Christ come? He came to bring glory to the Father. Yes, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Granted. But it's all for the glory of the Father. You know? It's all for the glory of the Father. When you look at the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God came that he, in dwelling us, that he may glorify me. Then, In other words, the Spirit would glorify Christ. And Christ glorifies the Father, you know. Our work is to glorify the Father. That's our goal. We bear much fruit. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty-one, Paul says, "Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God." Now, this is not an unusual notion, and the apostle doesn't uh, tell it for our detriment. But as an example of one who has attained to that joy in whatever state he finds himself. This is the Apostle Paul. Remember who we're talking about here. Paul has given up all for Christ. And he counts it all joy. Paul knew how to have a full life. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. it's incredible to imagine that you could contrast a life of suffering um, yet to be filled with all joy. Wouldn't it be amazing for you to do that? Wouldn't it be amazing that no matter what it is you're going through, no matter what it is that's ahead of you, no matter the fears, no matter the concerns, regardless of what it is, that your heart would still be filled with joy? And this is Paul. In chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians (coughs) So verse 4, he says this, now he's encouraging the workers of the Lord, the workers of Christ to be ambassadors for Christ. And he says this, he says, but in all things approving ourselves as the ministers of God in much patience, in afflictions, in necessities, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labours, in watchings, in fastings, by pureness, by knowledge, by long-suffering, By kindness, by the Holy Ghost, by love unfeigned, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armour of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honour and dishonour, by evil report and good report, as deceivers yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying and behold, we live, as chastened and not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things what a contrast what a contrast of life could you imagine any who don't know the lord who don't know christ who live in this world trying to attain to the happiness that this world promises could you imagine them saying something like this how can you how can you have nothing yet possess all things how can that happen what's our possession what's our inheritance Is it not Christ? Isn't he all in all? He's our possession. He's our joy. He's our hope. See, it's possible. Would you count everything lost for Christ? Is there something that we need to learn when we're told by James to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations? Is there something we need to learn from from James there? Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Have joy when you're falling into these diverse temptations. Peter, Peter tells us also. Interestingly, he says, "But and if you suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are you, and be not afraid of their terror, nor be troubled. Happy are you if you suffer for righteousness' sake. You're happy. You should count yourself glad. I'm suffering for the sake of righteousness. Don't count yourself glad if you're suffering because of what you've done." You know, don't count yourself glad if you're suffering as a result of the consequences of your own error and of your own sin. That's not glory. You know, that's not glory. But if you suffer for righteousness sake. The idea of happiness, the dictionary um, refers to it as coming or happening by chance, fortuitous chance. Another one is it's having good hap or good fortune. Uh, lucky, fortunate, favoured by a lot, position or other external circumstances. Uh, having a feeling of great pleasure or content, or content of mind arising from satisfaction with one's circumstances or condition. You can be happy and rejoice in suffering for Christ's sake. That's the circumstance. But that circumstance is time-bound. Everything that we have, even in Scripture with regards to happiness, is time-bound. Joy. Joy is both in time and eternal. It's everlasting. And that's what we need to be seeking after. That's why Jesus says his end goal, his, his goal for us is that we'll be full of joy. Full of joy. <clears throat> Could you imagine what it would be like, to have fullness of joy in spite of your circumstances? Could you imagine, imagine sitting in a, in, a, in a cold, dark cell? Um, it's wet. Uh, you're needing some clothing, all your friends are not there, not there present, Um, and there is a very strong likelihood um, you might die tomorrow. They may decide to come, take you, and take off your head, and that's the end of your life. Could you imagine being in that state and yet writing a letter to encourage your brethren and to tell them that I have learned... In whatever state I am, therewith to be content. And that's exactly what Paul did in Philippians chapter 4. That's exactly what he wrote. That's exactly what. Could you imagine? If, if, if you can find joy there, if you can find joy in that circumstance, then tell me where you can't. Where can't you find joy? I mean, that's, that's the joy that I want to be living with. Perhaps your happiness can only come based on the attainments of what the world tells you. Um, That you, you are the purpose of your life. You are the purpose of your life. That happiness can only come when you have all that you want. And that's not unusual. Thomas Aquinas actually said, happy is the man who has all his desires and whose every wish is fulfilled. Right. Aristotle confirms that the attainment of happiness differs to many, okay? So there's confusion. With regards to the, what the world believes about happiness, you have to understand that there is no... They all, they, they all know and trust that happiness is our goal, yeah? We, we saw that with, the, um, with the, the different quotes. Happiness is our goal. But they all differ on the means. What is it that's going to make you happy? And Aristotle confirms this. He basically says that to different people it's different things. He says some think that uh, some plain and obvious thing like pleasure and wealth or honour, they differ, however, from one another. And often the same man identifies it with different things. uh, With health when he is ill, with wealth when he is poor. It seems to be everything that we are lacking is what we desire to have. Okay. Benedict Spinoza, who was a philosopher in the 17th century... Um, He recognised that because the means are different and that the goal itself is... But he He says says that the goal itself is a high goal. Matter of fact, it's the absolute ideal. But he actually believes that because it's such an ideal, it's so difficult to get to. And he actually says this. He says, He says, It finds it necessary to say that the way to happiness must indeed be difficult, since it is so seldom discovered. So So what do we find? Has the world promised happiness? The world's promised happiness. The world promises all these different means of attaining the happiness. Spinoza here recognises that it must be difficult because he doesn't see too many people happy already. They're all striving. They're all pursuing that. Mortimer Adler actually highlights something in a really funny way. He says this, really interesting, because if happiness is our goal, it happens at the end. And he wraps this up well. He says, Man can only come to the possession of all good things only in the succession of his days, not simultaneously. And so happiness is never actually achieved, but is always in the process of being achieved. When that process is completed, the man is dead his life is done. Wow. Shoot for that goal, guys. I want to be happy. And it is the acquiring of all good things. So this explains to us why so many who thought toward happiness for their own purpose, for their own benefit, never seem to find it. And never seem to find We've got evidence of that everywhere, don't we? I mean, you're looking up at you might be looking up at people with incredible wealth. René Rivkin killed himself you know, because the wealth was gone. You see, when your life is wrapped up in the acquiring of wealth and that wealth is taken away from you, there's no other purpose for your life. You see, that's where you have your life. Your lifeblood is held in the wealth you desire to attain, okay? It's the same today even with people that are holding their hope and their happiness in a relationship. Once that relationship is ended, all of a sudden their hope is gone, you know? I've I've had people whose happiness was held... You're going to laugh. ..was held on the number of likes that they receive on Facebook. You know, you think that's funny. I'm 100% serious. 100% serious, you know. And not attaining to that was suicidal for this individual. Okay, When your security and your happiness is determined... By external activities, then you've got a real problem of attaining it. The third point. The third point. The choice of authority. It's a choice of authority. So your first choice was where you are going to have your abode. Okay? Your second choice was purpose. What's the purpose? What's your purpose? You have a choice of purpose. Is it to fulfil your desires, your needs, your lusts? Or is it to glorify God? You have a choice here of purpose. Alright? So choice of abode, choice of purpose. Now you have a choice of authority. Have a look at verse nine. He says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus gives us here a comparative choice. Okay? He's giving us a comparative choice. He says, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Therefore, he says, continue ye in my love. Continue ye in my love. Then he confirms the comparative commandment to choose, saying, If if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. We have a choice of a final authority that will ultimately attain to our fullness of joy and that is to keep the commandments of God hmm. the complete fullness of our joy is realized when we trust and obey his word as Christians you know you know even without me going on, what it is that takes away your joy. And it's disobeying the Lord. You know that sin is that which rips away that joy that you had in Christ. You know that sin within a believer is that which sees you grounded and sees you on your face. And it takes your joy. It's the biggest and the greatest cause of despair in Christians. I suffered 10 years with depression, not because of external things. I suffered because I remained in a sinful state before a holy God. And the spirit within me was grieved. It's not unusual to find Christians suffering with depression as much, if not more, than the people in the world. And the reason that they suffer with depression is because they are born again, but they are living in the flesh. And they have their abode in the world. And they think that that which they sought after as a pig in mud prior to their salvation would bring them the same happiness. Now, after salvation, their heart's desire is to obey the commandments, but they can't. And they don't know where they can get comfort. The comfort is in Christ. It's in Him. It's what He's done, not what we've done. It's all about Him, you know. It's never about us. It's all about Him. So, but we have competing authorities. What are we going to trust? Are we going to trust the Lord? Are we Are going to trust his commandments? Or, or is our authority going to be external from the Lord? Now, what I mean by this, and this is really, really important, and it's important to get your head around. We all have a final authority that we, we, we're looking for. We all have a final authority. Um, we have a choice whether it's going to be the word of God. Now, abandoning the Word of God, not having the Word of God, now we have another series of authorities that we need to choose. And we naturally choose them, okay? One of them is expert witness, okay? Philosophy, science, okay? Um, Different religions, okay? Expert witness. So we're trusting in the expert. The second one is majority opinion, okay? What's popular? What's the majority opinion, okay? The third one... um, the third one is, is, well, it's us. It's ourselves. We become the final authority. Oh, I can't agree with that. Oh, I don't, I don't believe that that's true. Or oh, Indeed, hath God said, you shall not eat of every tree. Hmm. Well, the Lord did say, you know, we shouldn't eat it, neither touch it, lest we die. You know? And what was her decision after that? She became the final authority. She says, yea, God hath not said, not in that way. She believed the devil, took of the fruit, and we have the entire fall of man based on the authority that Adam or Eve took upon themselves. The entire fall of mankind because we became the final authority. So where do we go? Do we, do we trust science? Let's have a look at what science says, okay? Just, just for a moment. Um, Science has put away God, they've put him away, they've put him in a box and they said, this is religion, this is over, this has got nothing to do with reality. Good, you want to enjoy it, you want to feel good about it, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, go for your life, you know. But other than that, we've got to get back to reality, right. So, the reality is, we evolved, right. universe is billions of years old, we came from, you know, the goo, we went through the zoo and to you, okay. So, that's, that's our evolution, right. We went through that whole process. Now, if that's true, there's consequences. There's consequences if that's true. Um, Richard Dawkins, the New Atheist, Richard Dawkins, he said this. He says, "The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference." Encouraging? Feel all pumped up? Yeah. Okay. So here's a scientist. We want to wrap this up because I want, to, I want to get science and philosophy completely out of the ballpark here with, with Bertrand Russell. Bertrand Russell was both a scientist and a philosopher. Listen to what he says. This is, a, this is charming. He says, "'That man is the product of causes which had no prevision "'of the end they were achieving, "'that his origins, his growth, his hopes and fears, "'his loves and his beliefs,' are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, that all the labours of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. (laughs) You know, that is amazing only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair wow wow that's guys they are they are bringing out the reality if there is no god there is no purpose if there is no god there is no purpose there is no reason for your existence your suffering has no benefit actually it has no purpose whatsoever Whatever you go through doesn't have an end. It doesn't have an end. Unyielding despair is where we build. Our scale. I don't know how they live this way, but they live because they've made that decision. The next. So can we, can we safely put aside expert witness? We can do that? All right, let's put aside expert witness. Let's have a look at majority of popular opinion, okay? It's commonly referred to as morals or the common mores of the people. Um, what is right and what is wrong is determined by... Vote generally, or whatever's more sternly pressed. Okay, happiness and its attainment can certainly be that which the many deem to be right and worth pursuing. Okay, Um, you've experienced this when you go out with a group of friends. All right, Uh, there's peer pressure on doing certain things that they find really good fun, but you think, hmm, might not be the right thing to do. I'm not sure if that's going to make me happy. Yeah, yeah, they reckon that's going to make you happy. So the peer pressure comes in and you go ahead with it. Uh, You would have seen this presented in our media. You might be one of the many, the many, whose weekend pleasures is defined by the final siren. You might be. You might be. My brother-in-law mourns at the end of the footy season. Sorry, what's the matter with you, Frank? What's up? And he goes, oh... I go, what? What's the story? You're, like, you're miserable, you know? You're like a horse. Your chin's dragging. You've got such a long face there. And he goes, no, no. I go, what is it? And he goes, oh, it's another you know, four months before the footy season begins. <laughs> you're kidding, really? And, you know, he mourns the end of the footy season. There's people that go miserable for the rest of their week. Lord help you if you're working with a guy whose football team just got trounced on the weekend. You know, and you're working on a scaffold, and he's a toiler. You know, you don't want to take a step out of line. I'm telling you, all right. Why? What's what's giving them happiness? What's their source of joy? You know, a couple of blokes in coloured jumpers kicking around a, a, a weird shaped ball through some sticks. No, seriously. You know, I love what Jerry Lewis said about golf. He says He's are hitting a little ball with a stick. That's golf, and yet multi-millions of dollars comes from that. So, it's that. Brethren, there's people today in the United States of America and in Australia who actually think that their hope and happiness is to be found in one of the two candidates that will eventually stand to become president or the leader of their respective nations. OK? The majority will be happy with the result. The majority will be happy with the result. But there will be some that will not be happy with the result. What is certain is that if circumstance is what makes you happy, it will not last. And judging by the candidates in America and Australia, regardless of who wins, your happiness will not last, Okay, They will not last. Is majority or popular opinion a worthy final authority? That's my question. Is it a worthy final authority, majority opinion? Is that a worthy final authority? Is that what you're to put your hopes in? Well, the majority of the people think this is good. You know, is that true? No. So we can put, we've got to put that aside. The next one is self, okay? That's really the last one. And this is, that, this is one I'm afraid to tell you that all of you suffer with this one from time to time. You all do, all right? You all determine for yourself what is right or what is wrong, what you enjoy, what you don't enjoy, what you think is true, what you don't think is true. Okay, you all do it, you need to stop it. Because you need to have your final authority somewhere else. You are not a good witness for yourself. If you've made one mistake in your life, and I can tell you right now, there's not too many mistakes I've missed, you are not a final authority. You're not adequate, you're not good enough. Okay, but Leo Tolstoy in his epic novel, War and Peace, he said this, man is created for happiness and happiness lies in himself. Happiness lies in himself. Many in the new age actually believe that same thing to be true. Uh, they believe that you find happiness within yourself. There's a lot of people who are uh, part of the self-awareness group who, who go around and they try and make people aware that they themselves are gods. Okay? They, they make people aware that they got to so they didn't know that they were gods before. Right? But they are there to wake people up and to make them aware that they are gods. It always strikes me as strange that someone could be omniscient and not know it. (laughs) Anyway, so we have today, uh, we have self-help books, self-esteem classes, self-belief, self-confidence, self-development, self-concept, self-awareness, self-assessments even. So it's all about self. It's about me and the top high, and the top highlight of our narcissistic culture is the selfie. <laughs> okay? It's the self. Do you know, do you know what narcissistic means? It's a, it's a weird word. It was based on a guy, a Greek god, who actually saw his own reflection in the water and fell in love. <laughs> fell in love. Wow. Narcissist. And what we have today is... Well, I heard of one guy recently who took... He, He almost ended his life. He'd taken almost a thousand selfies looking for the perfect one. Right? And he was so despondent because he couldn't find it. Do you know how many people have actually died taking selfies? I'm not kidding you. People have actually... It's actually a big thing happening in uh, in Europe and even in the US where people have literally... Here's a bridge. Got to get the right position, the right position. They've actually necked themselves taking a selfie. I don't, I don't know what their next photos were of, but wouldn't have been a good presence of, of them, do you know. But this is a real problem. Selfies. Why? Because we love ourselves. We we find comfort within ourselves. If we are insecure, we need to glorify ourselves. It's all about us. The greatest tragedy that we find today is that the greater the level of self absorption, the greater the misery and sorrow. The more people are self-absorbed, the more miserable they become. Calls to an Australian crisis support in 2015. A service known as Lifeline reached a high of one million people in 2015. One million suicidal people called Lifeline in 2015. Chief Executive Peter Smeagol... Um, actually described Australia's suicide rates as a national emergency. Suicide rates around the world are reaching astronomical highs. Well, if the scaffolding that you're going to be building within your life is based on nothing more than despair, you can understand why suicide rates would go sky high. If your joy and your hope lies in the promises that this world offers, you can understand that you're going to be disappointed. Regardless of what the determination is for people to choose themselves as a final authority, is clear that self makes errors of judgment. But happy is that people whose God is the Lord. Happy is he that hath the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Psalm 16 says, Thou wilt show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And Isaiah, thou they wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. We desire that peace. As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. Even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You have a choice of authority. You have a choice of authority. You need to have a final authority. It must be that which is from old, from everlasting. It has to be the word of God. If it's not the word of God, it's probably going to be a preacher. You know, it's probably going to be a preacher. That's dangerous. Really dangerous. Last point that Jesus Christ is the wellspring of joy. It's found there in verse 11. He says, These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. At the beginning of the chapter, Jesus makes clear that he is the true vine. He explicitly tells us that he is the vine and that we are the branches in verse 5. As he is the vine, it stands to reason that any branch that abides in him will bear much fruit. It will bear much fruit because it's determined by the nature of the vine, you see. That's why without him you can do nothing. Okay, it's determined by the nature of the vine. You abide in him, you will bear much fruit. The branch itself without the vine cannot bear any fruit. Simply can't bear any fruit. Here in the 11th verse, Jesus tells us that the purpose of his words, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you. My joy, he says, my joy might remain in you. He is that fountainhead. He is that true vine. When Jesus spoke to the woman at the well, we've got a wonderful portion in John chapter 4. You're in chapter 15. Flick back to chapter 4 and have a a look at this because this is wonderful and fascinating to see. Here is Jesus Christ. He sees a Samaritan woman. Um, He's there passing through that land and she comes to draw water from the well. And he is telling her the gospel, everything concerning himself. And he says there in verse 5. Let's have a look from verse 5. Then cometh cometh he to a city of Samaria, Samaria, which is is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the wall. And it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said unto her, Give me to drink. These disciples were gone away, unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, <coughs> excuse me, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. See, Jesus Christ is the source of everlasting life. He is the source of it. He is the source of all our joy. He is the source of all our joy. But you see, the choice is yours. See, you have the promises of the world who promise and promise and promise, puts it in our face day after day after day. ...dangling its own carrot. You have a choice. Which will you choose? The one who says he is the source of everlasting life? The one who is the wellspring of life? And the wellspring of our joy? Because in him is joy? And it's his joy that is imparted? Maybe it's time to make new choices. Maybe maybe also there's, there's some of you here who don't know Christ... The choice is there for you to make. Just for a moment, I want to just direct my attention to to those of you who don't know Christ. And some of you will know who you are, some of you won't know who you are. And and I'll say that in all sincerity. The Bible actually tells us in Matthew chapter 7 that there's going to be many people that actually believe that they are his but are not. You'll be able to identify yourself by the fruit that you bear. You'll be able to identify yourself by where you seek your comfort, where you seek your joy. The fall of man was a rebellion of man against God. The devil had already fallen. The devil and pride that was in the devil had already come. The devil is immortal. He cannot die. Okay? They cannot die. The angelic realm cannot die. The choice that they made to reject God is a permanent one. And the Bible says that hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't created for you wasn't created for you. That wasn't the original purpose of hell. It was created for the devil and his angels. But your sin places you in the same condemnation as the devil. And your end will be a lake of fire. Now there, there is only a memory of hope. And that memory will be done away. There is no hope there. There is no end there. And it's not about how good you are. It's not about all the things that you can do. You cannot be good enough to redeem yourself. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why? God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be Saved. See, so God wills that none would perish, but all would come to repentance. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If you're still in John, just go back a chapter. Go back to John chapter 3. You have three incredible verses, there are four, if you counted verse 15. But have a look at what he says. He says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoso believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Then he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. That's not the original intent of Christ's coming the first time. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save it. He came to save it. That the world through him might be saved. Then he says, He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Can I ask you, what saves you? What saves you? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Is it believe that saves you? What condemns you? (coughs) Believe not. Can I ask you a question? Why would a loving God who desires none to perish make everlasting life difficult to attain why would he make it hard why would he put in a whole bunch of rules and regulations and well to do's and all that sort of stuff in a complete set up religious system that you need to do this you need to do that you need to attend this you need to count rosary beads you need to do all this stuff and still at the end not have any knowledge of whether you have everlasting life Why would God who loves you and wills none to perish make it difficult? The way is a simple one. The way is before you. The way is narrow. The way is narrow. And few there be that find it. And it is 100% true that that which is impossible for man is possible with God. It doesn't take away from the fact that it's simple. A loving God would not have you jump through a multitude of hoops... To save you from eternal fire. The judgment of us was upon Christ. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. So for those of you who don't know Christ. Know that the choice to be made is yours. The choice of everlasting life is yours. That he did not make it difficult. He made the way simple. You choose to believe. And with respect to those of you who are seeking joy, it doesn't come anywhere else. It comes in the Lord. He is the fullness of our joy, the fullness of our hope. Don't, don't look to this world. This world's going to vanish away, brethren. This world's going to vanish away. But one thing you do need to do is you need to spend more time with one another. The Bible mentions that as you see the day approaching. As you see the day approaching, don't don't separate yourselves. You need to encourage one another because the days are going to be dark. But you are the light of the world. Okay, Don't hide yourself under a bushel. Don't, Don't hide yourself in the dark corners of this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the word of God. We thank you, dear Lord, that your words abide within us and that in them, dear Lord, we have everlasting life. We have all our petitions and all our desires. We know, dear Lord, that our greatest desire is Thee. We desire, dear Lord, to trust in You, to lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge You. In You, dear Father, is life and hope and joy and peace and comfort. But there are those, dear Father, here, dear Lord, that I pray for, and I ask You, dear Lord, that You would open their hearts to receive the everlasting life, that water that will spring up through Jesus Christ, that they will receive it, Father, and that they will come to you anew. Come to you as they are, dear Lord. But they will be changed, Father. I just pray, dear Lord, that you would be with them. Open their heart to receive the truth of who you are. No man can come to you lest the Father draws him. And we know, dear Lord, in you is fullness of life. We pray, dear Lord, that we would seek after your word. We would seek after the joy, that everlasting hope that we have in Christ. And that we will not turn back into this world, dear Lord, as dogs to their own vomit. We pray, dear Father, that you would encourage us in the truth of your word. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.